2: It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter.
1: It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I
3: think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture.
0: Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
2: And I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. Well, Madame Lizzie Burton is living her best life, of course. She's in Paris this morning. Hi, Lizzie. Good morning.
1: Hi. Hello. I am standing behind a poubelle in the Elysee <laughs> courtyard. It is not as glamorous as you make it sound. All the best <laughs> was, assignments. It's
0: not glamorous at all.
2: <laughs> uh, the Elysee Palace, no less, is actually where Lizzie Burton is today, of course, because the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is meeting with President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, what do you make of the Elysee? How does it compare to the Palace of
1: Westminster? Is it a bit uh, better maintained? Well, it has a courtyard in front, so there's a lot more space, I have to say. It is quite grand, um, but that, of course, is deliberate, Caroline, because Downing Street's meant to be humble compared to Buckingham Palace, isn't it? The Prime Minister's not the head of state. I can tell you the weather has been pretty abysmal. Rishi Sudak must have brought it with him, but we did have a bit of sunshine earlier, so maybe that's an omen that the bromance is going well inside the Elysée.
0: Beyond the uh, the optics and the bromance, what is Rishi Sunak hoping to get out of this from a UK perspective? What, what do we need?
1: Well, I wouldn't underestimate the symbolism because this is a sign of better relations between France and Britain. Sunak, of course, seems to get on with Macron better than Boris Johnson. All is trusted, but in terms of putting meat on the bones, one of the big topics today will be defence uh, because they need to heal the wounds after the Orcas deal uh, when the UK, the US and Australia uh, came together on defense, sort of at the expense of the Franco-Australian submarine deal, uh, blew that out of the water, as it were. Uh, But on Ukraine as well, they need to present a united front. Um, The fundamental question really is how they can end the war. And it seems like the UK is more aligned with the Nordic Baltic states in terms of wanting Ukraine to be strong when it comes to the negotiating table. Um, But France privately seems to be um, more conceding that the UK needs to give up some land in exchange for peace. So uh, the two sides are tugging away at the different uh, positions on that, and we'll see where they land at the press conference later. The other thing that will come up today is boats, small boats, the flow of migrants crossing the channel. Um, it's a thorny issue, a difficult one to solve. Neither side is going to want that to undermine or dominate the discussions today, but is going to want something to bring home to the domestic audience. Macron wants boots on the ground, funding for policing on northern French beaches. Uh, he, Sunak is likely to give mm-hmm. in to that because it costs less than uh, putting up asylum seekers in British hotels. But what I don't expect Macron to give in on is taking back asylum seekers who've already reached Britain, he's likely to tell Sunak that's one for Brussels.
2: Okay, that's uh, very interesting. So that from the UK perspective. But I also want to bring in now our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Lionel Laurent, who joins us also from Paris. Lionel, you've spent time in the UK, you you live in, in France now. Because of the issues that Lizzie mentioned, a lot of importance being attached to this meeting. Is it as important to Emmanuel Macron?
4: It's a very different feeling here, I I have to say. Uh, Diplomats describe it to me as a reset. As you're pointing out, relations with Boris Johnson were absolutely dire. This is the first meeting of its kind since 2018. There is a desire for a better relationship. Uh, Remember that Paris uh, could have been expected to be a bit like uh, Charles de Gaulle and say, you know, oh, uh, come crawling back, have you, after your years of Brexit uh, isolation and basically not uh, given such a a happy uh, display. But Macron does, I think, see the advantage in uh, opening up to the UK because France uh, geopolitically is feeling a bit frustrated with uh, the Franco-German relationship on, on the continent. Germany is proving a bit more selfish and a bit more uh, preoccupied with its with, with national uh, interests, uh, corporations and trade more than Paris would like. And so Paris is now focused on getting those similarities between France and the UK from a geopolitical perspective. Uh, I do think actually they are quite aligned when it comes to Ukraine. I think both countries have a similar view of the importance of military power, hard power, not just soft power. Uh, and I think that even though um, on an issue like the small boats. So I really don't don't see uh, them seeing eye to eye on that because that is a long running story, and I think it's one primarily designed for domestic UK consumption. It's really there to keep the Tories uh, together, especially the the hardline Tories behind Sunak. I don't see much eye to eye there. But on defence, I do think it's important to revive some of the past bilateral agreements uh, that that, that were signed in 2010, and just to again get get a kind of reset going. It's it, this is very early days for the for the Franco British relationship, that I think it's seen here as the kind of first first step.
0: Lionel, I want to I want to get your your wider take on on the on the relationship. You're French, obviously, but you lived in London for for several years. What's your take on on the, the the rather odd relationship between the two nations? It's, it's a strange cocktail of respect and derision and animosity and, and friendship, isn't it?
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, opposites opposites attract, and maybe France and the UK are just uh, too similar in in their differences. Uh, they they share this maritime border of the channel. Uh, this is, this, this t- pressure around migrants has been going on for years, if not decades. The history of the UK and Europe, as anyone who watches Yes Minister will know, that the UK has always tried to divide and rule on the continent, and the history of the UK and the European Union is exactly that. Remember that the UK didn't want at all to join uh, the, the, the European community. Then afterwards, it decided that, yes, actually it would like to join. And then it had to overcome years of french opposition to get in and then it got out and now soon like it's trying to get back in so i think that this is all kind of part of the course in terms of two neighboring countries that are very alike yet have totally different designs on their place in the world the uk has always been looking to the us france has always been looking towards europe sometimes their interests align I, I i do think now their interests do align because the uk looks very isolated i think the uk does need friends Uh, In a world where superpowers are forming blocks and doing subsidy races, I think the UK looks very isolated. I think France is looking for options. So I think now could be could be the start of something a bit more constructive.
2: Okay, Um, let me bring Lizzie back in on this point then. So we've talked a bit about uh, the the military ties and links that the thoughts around migrants there's also an issue though about business ties i mean paris just overtook london uh in recent weeks as the biggest stock market in europe so what about investment jobs that sort of cooperation yeah
1: it's embarrassing isn't it for britain that you're seeing lots of banks one after the other, choosing to move staff to Paris. And Paris seems to be doing better than many of its European rivals in attracting that talent. So post-Brexit is not what Rishi Sunak was hoping for uh, when what Britain wants to look like is the Silicon Valley. Uh, you know. But expect some things on this in the budget, budget next week uh, to try to build on the Windsor framework to attract investment to the UK. At the moment... Uh, we're not expecting a uh, cancellation of this planned rise in corporation tax, but perhaps there will be more uh, to try to bring that business investment here.
0: Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us from Paris. That's our Lizzie Burden and Bloomberg opinion columnist uh, lena Laurent. Yeah, Lizzie, mentioning uh, the budget with five days away. Of course, we've had those GDP numbers today, which welcome for the government, not as bad as. Uh, economists were expecting and uh, the economy show the economy showing sort of well would you call it robust growth reasonable growth in january not quite robust i wouldn't call (laughs) it
2: robust i mean three tenths of one percent no look it's decent. It's, it's certainly not a decline so that is good. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, at least we managed to avoid a recession last year, growing uh, at the start of this year. Now the budget, we've got special coverage of course on the budget starting on Monday will be fascinating to see what Hunt can really include, how much the government thinks that it's got in terms of fiscal headroom. We're going to do a deep dive on one of the issues that may arrive and arise and this is on technology and science. I've got a special uh, radio piece that we're going to play out for you on Monday morning from Cambridge guests on science, tech, and innovation. Uh, it is a big emphasis, um, a growing emphasis for Rishi Sunak, who's talked about putting more money into a British supercomputer, talked about more, uh, you know, for R and D. I, I think mm. that this is kind of, if if. Sunak and Macron have a similarity. It's in terms of being perhaps technocrats, and so this idea mm. of science innovation. so that special report will be on Monday, just the start of our budget coverage because we're going to have the budget live for you, of course, on Wednesday,
0: yeah, because the government's saying wants to turn the u k into the uh, Silicon Valley of Europe perhaps we'll get some (laughs) we'll get some meat on those bones yeah great special program coming up on uh, Wednesday at 12 o'clock live on Bloomberg Radio with Prime Minister's questions and then the budget uh, and then we'll take the Labour response and we'll get analysis from uh, Bloomberg's David Merritt so that's 12 o'clock and of course we'll bring you that on the podcast as well.
2: Now, let's bring you a Bloomberg scoop. The UK government suspects that Russians are using shell companies to set up in the UK to launder war profits stolen from Ukraine. I want to bring in uh, the authors of this piece, amazing piece, Bloomberg's Alex Wickham and Alberto Nardelli. Uh, Before we get to another fascinating guest, somebody who uh, made a very a pointed move resigned at the dispatch box uh from boris johnson's government over the issue of fraud we'll get to that guest in a moment leave you guessing alex wickham joins us now alex um just firstly on this immensely serious topic talk us through what you found
5: well basically it's been known for years that foreign nationals um people around the world with sort of illicit aims have abused the British company's house system, which is pretty lax to set up companies to launder money to evade tax. The development is that UK law enforcement has sort of seen um, companies that were set up a few years ago, maybe not much has happened with those companies since, but now they are being used to essentially, um, profit from the war in Ukraine. So there's one company we found, for example, where that was set up by three Russian nationals a few years ago. It's according to international shipping registers, owns a ship that is going back and forth, we can see through through the Black Sea. And it's essentially suspected of stealing grain from Ukraine, illegally transporting grain out of Ukraine to Russia. And that company, that ship is owned by this British company. So, you know, that is obviously of concern to British law enforcement. Um, And it sounds like there are potentially hundreds of, of similar scenarios where, where companies set up by Russians are sort of operating under the surface here with very lax checks in the UK, able to set up bank accounts thanks to their British incorporated companies with a sort of veneer of respectability. Yeah. And then, you know, the illicit gains are, are essentially passed through.
0: And Alex, w- why, why Britain? Is it simply because it is, it's easier and there, and there are fewer checks?
5: pretty much it's very cheap to set up a company in britain you pay 12 pounds and you can have a company established the next day the checks are pretty are pretty lax let's be honest you know you you upload a couple of documents which which you know no one no one is really investigating very very thoroughly and before you know it, you've got a company and and with that company you can very quickly get a bank account with a with a sort of a, certainly a british digital bank um very very quickly or perhaps yeah. a a, a bank o- overseas with, with you know, again, not not too thorough checks, it just gives them that sort of respectability. They can say, "Oh well, you know, we're we're a legitimate business, we're a legitimate enterprise, mm-hmm. we're a British company." Um, and you know, for things like ships wanting to wanting to pass pass around, pass through ports around the world, it it just it just allows you know that that sort of that sort of ease. Um, and then the concern, certainly. Um, that's developed over the last few weeks, I think, in in government is that, you know, essentially that means that Russian nationals who want to evade sanctions, who want to steal steal, essentially from Ukraine are doing so with with a sort of British-backed business uh, behind it, which is obviously, Uh you know, very alarming.
2: Yeah, and also that they may be looking sort of for the weakest link amongst the kind of sanction regime um, that has been enforced against Russia. Alberto Nardelli, um, let me bring you in now on this point. I mean, you've been following the sanctions story right across Europe. How much is the UK um, different? How much of it is actually a a UK problem? It seems to me, sounds to me like a kind of fresh twist on the London laundromat that we you know, have no has been a problem for a long time. But is Britain exceptional here? Um,
6: I think if we take a, a step back, the there's a issue with sanctions enforcement across um, much of Europe, so EU plus UK, and the main reason is that Europe um, doesn't really have a history of enforcing sanctions. So the the US has a centralized agency. Um, It has done this for years and years and years. It it, it has investigations, uh, it has the expertise, and it has really enforced sanctions for many, many years. In Europe, this is really the first time that sanctions are being, uh, or they're trying to to, to properly enforce sanctions. And Russia, conversely, has a very long history uh, which dates back to even during the the Cold War of trying to get past sanctions now and in, and in the past embargoes and um, things like that. And so that really is the is the bigger picture. So while you have companies for example, that don't sell their goods directly to Russia or if, if a sanctioned individual uh, owns a property, that property gets um, uh, frozen, you have lots of loopholes that, for example, allow if a property is registered in the name of a family member, then they look up and say, well, that person's not sanctioned, so that transaction is fine. And it's the same with goods. If they don't sell directly to Russia, lots of times the good uh, goes through a third country and then eventually to Russia. And it's the where the UK becomes relevant is that lots of times these types of transactions happen through... Uh, british companies where as alex said it, it's very easy uh, mm. to set up a company that allows you for example then to go to another country and you know e- yeah. set up a bank account under using a british company and russians know exactly which banks to go to and where in terms of where that's easier so they're looking at different jurisdictions uh-huh. where the weak points are and in the yeah. uk the weak point currently is things like companies and in the past, you know, anti-money anti um, money laundering legislation, things like that, which weren't very okay. stringent.
2: Alberto, thank you so much for being with us, Alberto Nardelli and Alex Wickham, uh, the authors of a lead piece here in uh, on Bloomberg around the UK government and their suspicions that shell companies are being used by Russians. Now, someone who perhaps is pretty familiar with this difficulty of enforcement is our next guest.
3: I hope that as a virtually unknown minister beyond this place, giving up my career might prompt others more important than me to get behind this and sort it out.
2: So that was Theodore Agnew, the Conservative Lord, former Treasury and Cabinet Office minister, dramatically resigning a year ago from the Johnson government as efficiency minister over the government's, quote, lamentable oversight of Covid loan schemes. But it was also seen as a broader shot across the bows at government and the lax approach on financial enforcement.
0: Well, joining us now is Lord Agnew. Thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics. Now, you, you staked your career on on fixing the issue of fraud in the UK. From our reporting, n- nothing much seems to have changed w- when it comes to UK enforcement. I, I, is that fair?
3: Well, we're not called London bread for nothing, I'm afraid. So to that extent, you're right. But on a more optimistic note we are seeing progress because we got the very short sharp economic crime bill this time last year prompted by our inability to even levy proper sanctions on the bad actors so that was rushed through we now have a proper property in uh register at the land registry which is starting to show some very interesting information actually and now we're in the middle of the next much more comprehensive economic crime bill which is our real golden chance opportunity to to make things happen.
2: I think that's really interesting. I spoke to the business minister at the time, actually, uh, about, about five, six weeks ago on the issue of, of the property register. But look, on on the scoop that Bloomberg has out today on Companies House, it is obvious that this is lax. It's been obvious for you know, a long time to people who, who who know about it that the rules around setting up companies in the UK are very lax. Are the reforms really going to change that? These reforms that you mentioned that are going through Parliament, is it actually going to make a difference? How?
3: Well you're right that the company's house has been astonishingly lax. For the for the second reading debate in which I spoke on this economic crime bill, I did my own research, I found that a few years ago we had a company director called Jesus Christ, whose occupation was listed as creator and his residence as heaven, and that was on there for over a year before somebody finally dealt with it. So that just gives you an illustration of how of how complacent the system is. I, I'm I'm pushing very hard in this bill, which is hard as a backbencher, but I'm trying to make the government understand that we we've got to make companies' house fit for purpose. They have moved in some direction to that, but there is a lot left to do, which is why I have this week filed some amendments to the bill to try and toughen it up.
0: How do we get that balance right, though? Because it is important that it's easy to create companies, isn't it? That is uh, something that makes the UK attractive. It's easy to start a business. You pay a, a small amount of money and you've got a company. How, how do we how do we get that balance correct?
3: Well, it's not that difficult. I mean, it, if we had... A, a central form of digital identity for individuals who were setting up these companies, for example, then then we would know immediately that they were who they said they were, and that would that would that, that would cost very little. And then, the Companies house needs to have resources which it has available to pursue the the bad people who try to get into the system. At the moment, mm. the fees are so low that they are a joke. I mean, it, it, to set up a company in New York costs over a thousand dollars and we're charging you know 25 quid or something Uh, so even if we put that up to a modest hundred pounds that would it's hardly deterring someone from setting up a business if they can't raise the money for that frankly they shouldn't be going into business
2: Okay, so we're back to the idea of will. Is the will there to tackle this issue? How do you think the oversight of the professional services world that has enabled Russian oligarchs uh, be policed? How should that actually uh, be done?
3: Well, you're right. There is very much a kind of uh, ask no questions, tell no lies concept with some of the more cynical enablers. And I believe the bill needs to be strengthened up on that. It's a difficult balancing act because 90% of people are are honest. And if it is all imposed on them as well, it does make life more frustrating for legitimate activity. But I believe that there is more that we can do. A duty of care on these enablers, I think, could have a significant deterrent on them from just uh, acting to enrich themselves.
0: What about lawyers... Working with sanctioned Russians, Transparency International say that they should only be paid um, legal aid rates. Do you think that is a good, a good way forward?
3: I think that would be a very good way forward. I mean, we don't want to remove the right to legal representation for people, but the, it then links to this other issue. These things are all interconnected to slaps, you know, where where bodies or journalists in particular are silenced by the sheer weight of litigation. Uh, because they have unlimited budgets, some of these people. So, if the, if if that was the case, if it was limited to the legal aid rates, uh, we wouldn't see these big, wealthy fir- firms uh, uh, piling in to the extent that they do.
2: Lord Agnew, you've agreed with almost every point we've made. Um, the problems are well, very obvious. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. But I think the issue is that the problems are obvious. They are known. They are seen. So why hasn't it been fixed? As as we've mentioned, you, you made this kind of dramatic resignation speech. It was there as a huge gauntlet to government and nobody seems to have picked up that baton.
3: Well, I, I mean I mean let's be honest, I was a middle ranking minister that no one had ever heard of. So I don't I want to overstate my influence in the machine. But we did get just before I resigned, another thing that needled me was that at that moment, a couple of weeks before I, I left, was they had just taken the economic crime bill off the parliamentary timetable. So that was extremely irritating. Now, the reason that one came back on again and was not my resignation, although they did promise to bring one back after I would resigned. But obviously it was the Ukrainian invasion. But what it did do was they then committed to do a proper one when the when the short, sharp one went through. So let's let's be a little bit glass half full on this. We do now have a new economic crime bill, which is in the system. It's not it probably does 70 percent of the job. So it's better than what we have at the moment. But I think we can improve it. And that's really where my energy is focused at the moment.
2: All right. I want to go back then because you were also quite positive about um, the Register of Beneficial Owners. So this is the new property register that's come into force in the UK. So anyone who buys property um, has to kind of declare who the beneficials owners are um, and this is seen as reasonably tough as you say I spoke to the business minister Martin Callan on the podcast only a month ago I mean, he was delighted frankly uh, at the at the property register and he was talking very tough on enforcement the enforcement that was going to come and so it's kind of a, a, sort of a huge disappointment to find another massive Russian loophole when it comes to Companies House.
3: Yeah, well, you're right. And uh, I'm pleased that he was talking tough. He's no longer the minister involved mm. because he's moved to the new science department. But, mm. but I, it, it, And it's fine to talk tough, but then we've got to give the resources to the enforcement agents, agencies to actually be able to be tough. And, of course, that is a huge problem in itself. So one of the amendments I filed a table this week for the bill is to allow fines to be recycled so that the, the money that's recovered can be ploughed back into future enforcement. And that would that would be a game changer in itself. It wouldn't cost the taxpayer anything, and it would give a huge boost to the 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 level of enforcement that we're able to undertake.
0: Do you think the bill strikes the right balance? Because there is a lot of money, isn't there? In, well, let's call them enablers, but professional services broadly, which the UK is very good at, uh, you know, legal, financial. Uh, and there is money to be made from from uh, cash, foreign cash, which is not which is not always dodgy is it and some and some of it it's quite difficult to, to draw that line isn't it so it's a, it's a
3: difficult balance
0: <clears> to <throat> strike isn't it
3: no well you'd sound just like a treasury official actually i think you, you deserve a <laughs> career change because that's the sort of appeasing talk that we have heard for year after year and mm. uh, i don't think that the bill strikes the right balance Which is why i'm trying to improve it it, it is an improvement it's better than where we are today so now, that's why I don't want to just be pointlessly negative about it. But 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 the balance needs to go a lot further, because people what people mm-hmm. don't, don't seem to understand is that bad money chases out good money. That's what happens in life. You've only got to look in places like southern Italy, where some of the biggest mafia groups are controlling two or three percent of GDP. I, I mean, they are operating as a shadow government. And that's what that's the end game. If we don't actually wake up, it's the astonishing complacency that I find so frustrating. But you know, we're fighting hard. This is the moment. And and things like the, the your interest really does help because it it really puts the spotlight back onto this whole subject. People's eyes glaze over until they see the reality of it so in your article about the, the grain ships and the companies running these illegal grain shipments uh, out of the ukraine and so on being registered here when people can see the impact of economic crime then then they start to get behind it
2: yeah i mean and we, and we must not be naive um but look People coming to the UK, uh, business people especially, they do come because, actually, of Britain's perception as fair dealing, as a country with a strong rule of law, stability, uh, a good court system, lack of corruption overall. So I think the other really big concern, you know, to your point about people's eyes glazing over, the issue is, are you concerned about that reputation actually being eroded,
3: Uh, absolutely of course if we're seen as a soft touch then it will chase out good money that that is the reality of it which is why this is so important that we we can have all we're trading on a reputation that's been built up over hundreds of years and we risk destroying that reputation over tens of years and that's why we simply have to act now
0: you were a, a treasury minister uh during a difficult time for the country during COVID, now we're still dealing with the, the financial repercussions of that. What are your hopes for n- next week's next week's budget?
3: Well, I think it's uh, it's terribly sad that they're yanking up corporation tax by thirty percent. I think that that is a it is a tragically misjudged thing to do because you know, we've left the European Union. We are setting out our stall to the rest of the world to be a place for businesses to come to and just at that moment we we do that so I'm very hopeful that they might make that a bit less uh, brutal because I don't even sure how much extra revenue that generates so so for me that is probably the single most or well, that's the totemic part, uh, part of the budget the other issues mm. are of course the the numbers of people who are economically inactive, and also the severe cost of childcare, which is in, increasing uh, the uh, or making it much harder for, particularly, women to come back into the workforce. So those those are the three areas I would probably go for.
2: Hmm. I'm delighted you mentioned the childcare costs. Um, yeah, I, I think it's um, a very important issue too. Uh, look on on the government though, are we? <sighs> Are we just in a state of limbo ahead of the next election? Is this budget, in your view, important at all?
3: Well, I think it is really important because it's it's really the last major fiscal event that can occur with a chance of it flowing through into the economy. So I would say it's the most important fiscal event between now and the general election.
0: And on the, uh, talking of the general election, do do you think the Conservatives uh, have uh, a chance of uh, holding on to their majority?
3: Well, it's going to be a tough, a tough gig for, for, the, for the, uh, the Prime Minister. But again, one must give him credit. He's trying to tackle some of the most entrenched problems that have we've got. The work he's done on the Northern Irish Protocol, I can tell you from my own experience, is very significant because I was the minister for HMRC border readiness at the moment of Brexit. And I had to deal firsthand with all these dreadful issues in Northern Ireland where, where trucks were having to list individual items to comply with the new rules i mean it was a total nightmare sausages couldn't go in and so on he's resolved a huge amount of that and i give him full credit for that so that that i know it's not a huge electoral winner but it does show that he is able to solve some intractable intractable problems and we must give him credit for that then the next one of course are the small boats which does affect everybody and i i'm whether the new bill will work, but he's done everything that's possible. And I just, uh, and I think he's building bridges with the French, which we, I think he's off there in the next day or two, which again is fundamental. He can prove that he can deliver. I think too many politicians have simply forgotten that ordinary citizens are interested in what is delivered to them, not in a lot of waffly rhetoric. And he is trying to deliver.
2: Okay, Uh, fantastic. Well, we shall end our waffly rhetoric right now. Theodore Agnew, thank you so much um, for being with us. It's been a very interesting conversation. We really appreciate your thoughts. Uh, Lord Agnew, Conservative Lord, former Treasury and Cabinet Office Minister talking through, well, one of uh, Bloomberg's big scoops, really, around um, around Russian money and how it's uh, perhaps still flowing through companies that are registered here in the UK at Companies House. I think it's very important he talked us through what the government and uh, the bill that is going through Parliament is going to try to do on that point.
0: Yeah, fascinating to get Lord Agnew's thoughts on the wider political picture, saying it's time to give uh, Rishi Sunak a bit of uh, leeway over delivery, saying that he's already starting to deliver the goods and to kind of watch him deliver some more, perhaps, as we look ahead to that general election in uh, less than two years' time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right, that's it uh, from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.
0: This episode was produced by James Wilcock and Mariful Hussain is our audio engineer. I'm Ewan Potts.
2: And I'm Caroline Hepker. We'll be back with the drum roll getting towards the budget on Monday. This is Bloomberg.
0: Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
4: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.